All right, so we're going to talk about Philadelphia, right? The sixth letter to the seven churches. But before we do that, I am going to prove to you something that my children learned when they were very young. And it's a, it's a terrifying truth if you're the child of a pastor. Just about anything in life can be brought into a sermon. Are you ready for this? At 12 o'clock today, the Minnesota Vikings are going to play the New York Jets, correct? Woo! See, the Vikings jerseys in the house. The New York Jets play very close to a team called the Philadelphia Eagles. We're going to study the church in Philadelphia. More important than that, people in Philadelphia, where you all know where it is, now know where New London Spicer is because the New London Wildcats were number one on the ESPN Play of the Week this morning, I'm told. And not only did they win the Minnesota State High School Football Championship, that guy that caught the pass and had the incredible presence of the whole, you know, Grant Pathrath is here. You saw his name on the... Will you stand up, Grant? Congratulations, man. We're going to worship Jesus, but we get a chance to celebrate you and the guys. That was awesome. Thank you for giving small town such an amazing reason to celebrate. Was that like the coolest thing ever? Yeah, it's pretty much the coolest thing ever. Yeah, that was just unbelievable. No doubt that's an ESPN number one moment. Way to go. That's so cool. And I am so impressed that after all that, you're here in church this morning. That is really cool. Thanks for being here. All right, church in Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, maybe more better off translated, uh, the city or the one who loves his brother. And so, John and Chris, where did you guys go? There you are. Thank you for doing what wasn't comfortable for you any more than it was for Jed and doing the brotherly love welcome this morning. Thank you for that. And yeah, you can clap for them. That's cool. So I, I've known Chris for a while, so I'm sitting in a, in a Wednesday night study with John, and so we started talking, and I said, is that big dude really your brother? He really is. No way. Yeah, he really is. They really are brothers, so thank you for being brother. What's that? He's your little brother. Let's not, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll not get into who's the better looking brother. We'll just leave the little brother, yeah. So Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, for the first time, we're talking about a city that we can kind of relate to. We've heard about this one. There's a little bit of something that makes sense. You know, you don't even have to be around a church to know that Philadelphia somehow or another is a city of brotherly love. They like talking about it. Back in the day, Philadelphia was located on the border of Turkey, and it it was the least uh, built city of the seven. It was probably the smallest in terms of population. But it was there for a very specific purpose. The city of Philadelphia had been planted at this point and, and was established to open the whole surrounding area to the Greek culture. As the Greek culture was expanding, they were planting cities to get people to help understand the way of life and of work and society and culture and religion. And the city of Philadelphia is one of those cities. It was a city plant just like we are a church plant. We're planted in this area by God, and we're going to talk about that as we go along, as an outpost of heaven, just like they were an outpost of of the Greek culture, to be able to spread what it was to be Greek. Well, our job is to spread the love of Jesus and salvation in his name. So Philadelphia, if you think about it, the folks that live there, especially the Christians, it was a daily unrelenting, constant reminder of what is expected of them as believers and what was possible for them in Jesus. The city of brotherly love, that's a pretty, that's a pretty high bar to actually live up to that. But as Christians, isn't the same expected of us? 
Are we not supposed to love each other the way that Jesus loves us? Is that not the thing that the world is supposed to know us by our love? So really the similarities for us in this letter, there are many, and we're going to see about a whole lot more of them. So to have a name like Philadelphia was a constant reminder. But, but there was also an urgency that the city had, because in 17 AD, years before this, there had been a tremendous earthquake that had wiped out, utterly decimated, Ten cities, including the city of Sardis that we studied not long ago, wiped them out. Don't exist anymore. The earthquake literally leveled them to the ground. Philadelphia wasn't wiped out, but it was badly, badly uh, damaged. And so uh, Tiberius Caesar gave a whole lot of money in order to help rebuild the city. And actually, there was a time when they went through a name change. The name change was Neo Caesarea, which meant the new city of Caesar. So there's all kinds of stuff going on. And because of that earthquake and the tremors and everything that followed, the people that lived in Philadelphia were under this constant reminder that life is fragile. Life is short. Things aren't really guaranteed. You know, there's this constant threat every time the ground beneath them, the one thing that should be stable, started to shudder and shake. There's this reminder of their own death and the the potential for destruction. Now, the name Neo-Caesarea wasn't kept permanently, but the people in Philadelphia understood what it meant to go through a name change. And that becomes a significant part of this letter. And so it starts out to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David. So if you were here and were singing that first opening hymn that we did, that song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, there's a phrase in there that you've probably sung hundreds of times before, but maybe you've never thought about it. Maybe you never really consciously recognized it because you didn't know what it means. The phrase is, O come thou key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. What's the verse? The words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David. So why is it there? Why is it important? Thank you for asking. Let me tell you. In the midst of the city of Philadelphia, there was a Jewish synagogue. That would be reasonable because a lot of Jewish people scattered outside of Jerusalem and Israel. And as they gathered into cities and even a new city that was being built, they would establish a religious center, a religious stronghold for themselves. And so there is a synagogue and the Jews that lived in Philadelphia arrogantly claimed that they were the only true followers of the only true God, even though... They absolutely denied God's son, Jesus. So they're making the statement that they're the ones, they're the ones that hold the key of David. They're the ones who have the truth of God. They're the ones, if you want to know truth, you've got to come to us. They believe that their priests alone had the right and the ability to open and to shut the door to God and his kingdom to ordinary people. So the key of David, biblically, is a symbol of of divine and ultimate authority. But what the Bible actually says that these Jews who denied Jesus didn't understand and were too arrogant to acknowledge was that the key of one that holds the key of David is Jesus. He alone is the one who is the ultimate divine and authority of God. The key of David first appears in Isaiah 22, 22, and then there's a couple other places in the New Testament that we see it. But it's significant, especially to this church, that is a few Christians who are surrounded by Greek culture and then the Jewish culture who definitely has the upper hand. Now, Jesus alone is the one who's writing this letter, right? You're telling us 
uh, about this letter, and John's recording it. He tells us that he alone is holy and true, not the church. He alone holds the key of David, not the priests in the Jewish synagogue. He does. No person, no matter how important we might make them, how important they might think they are, no church, no matter how big or how successful or how powerful it looks, has that authority. That alone belongs to Jesus. Jesus alone holds the keys of David. Still today, there are major religions on earth, major religions on earth, that claim that they alone hold the real truth of God. They alone, whether it be their pastors or their priests or their leader, who has been uniquely picked by God to speak God's truth to the world, even if that truth differs from what's in Scripture. Sometimes they say it's a new revelation. Sometimes they say it's an additional teaching. But the Bible says none of that. Don't accept any of it. Don't believe in it because that's not the way God works. But still today, 2,000 years later, there are churches that are doing the very same thing that these Jews did. So anytime that any church, whether it's a church down the street or a major world religion or any church leader, claims that they are the one, the, the only one that's been chosen to hold the keys to God's truth, you should turn around and run and run quickly and never look back. Why? Because the bottom line is that that is a deceptive lie from the enemy of God. Here's why. Because the moment you, that that claim is made, I'm the only one or we're the only one or this church is the only one that truly has the keys to God. We truly have the truth of God or the extra truth of God. What begins to happen very quickly is you cease to worship God and you begin to worship the church. Because the church is the way to heaven, not Jesus. And it always happens. The packaging is a little bit different, but it always happens the same way. You end up worshiping the church and its leaders. We end up putting the leaders in a position that they should not have. And before long, the subtle teaching that comes through is it's, it's no longer Jesus who saves us, but it's the church and the leaders in the church. It's your belonging to the church is what saves you. And that is the deceptive lie that comes from the enemy of God. And the Jews of, G of this day in Philadelphia were preaching that message to the Christians. But what we know scripturally is that Jesus is truth. Jesus is the opposite of lies and deception. There's no falsehood. There's no deception in Jesus. He alone is holy and true. You and I, we're not. We can tell the truth, but we are not holy and true. Jesus is. God in his wisdom and his grace sent Jesus, his only son, as the one who was God's truth in living, breathing, loving human form. It's what we're about to celebrate at Christmas. We're about to celebrate the day that God sent his only son Jesus to earth to live as one of us and eventually to die. Jesus alone is the holy truth teller, the divine promise keeper, our beloved Savior, the living embodiment of the very word of God. It doesn't come from someone else or another place or come through uh, the leaders of a church because they claim they have the only church. It comes through God's word and it comes from Jesus. Passage goes on and says, It's he who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Scripturally, an open door is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for ministry, and we're going to hear more about open doors in the next verse. It's an opportunity to share the love of Jesus. It's an opportunity to speak his name. It's an opportunity to tell people, why do you have the hope? Why do you have the confidence? Why do you have the joy in the midst of pain and suffering that you do? It's because of Jesus. So this verse in Revelation is one of the reasons for our name. And you'll get to that in a little bit, in a little bit later here. The other reason 
is think about those huge wooden doors in the cathedrals of Europe. You know, there was so much money that spent building these massive stone cathedrals, but there was typically only one way that people could walk in, and that was these wooden doors that were, were 8, 10, 12 feet wide, 30, 40 feet tall, hundreds and hundreds of pounds. And in order to open one, in order to, to be able to go and see the magnificent grandeur that is this worship space, in order to be able to walk in to meet Jesus and worship God, somebody would have to open those doors. And so part of the reason that we're called the open door is that we want people to focus on Jesus, not on us. Here's a door right here. It's kind of similar to what most of us have in our houses. There's a handle and one person can throw it open. No big deal. You can open, stand and greet somebody. But these cathedral doors are different. If this is a cathedral door and I've got the handle and I'm going to open it this way because I want all of you to walk in. I've got to take that handle because I've been by, David and I have been by these doors. You pull that thing open and it's kind of a slow thing because it's a huge door. And you end up, by the time the door is open and you can see inside, the person who opened it is hidden. And I think that's so significant and it's a part of our name because we're not interested in inviting people here to meet us alone. We're interested in inviting people here so that we can introduce them to Jesus. And in those big cathedrals, that's the whole point, is that you get to see that space without people standing in the way. And if we do our job opening the door correctly, it isn't us that people are going to be impressed with. It's Jesus who they're going to get to know. And that's a very, very important distinction to make. So what we want to do is open the door so that people can meet Jesus, can worship him, and can learn from God's word when you're here. So when Jesus opens a door, whether it's an open door in heaven or a door open to a person's heart, there's nobody on earth, nobody that can close it. Now, this is an important step to take here. We're not just talking churches. We're talking you and your life. See, God, in his wisdom, knew you, the Bible says, before you were born. The Bible says that God created you in his image for a purpose and with a plan and for a reason. You're not here by mistake or by accident. Maybe you're floundering through life because you're trying everything you want to do and nothing's working. But you know what? God created you for a purpose. You've got a divine call on your life, and I have one on mine. And as much as we might face opposition or, or persecution or difficult people who don't want to see us succeed in our call, there's nobody on earth but Jesus who can change it. And so what this means is if a church focuses on teaching and talking and living for Jesus, there's no power on earth that can destroy that church. People delight in taking down churches and church leaders for any number of reasons, and they'll make them up if they have to. So around here, what, what we do is we want to make sure that what we're about is Jesus and preaching his name and sticking to his word. So we break down that commitment into a very simple phrase. It's our mission, to love Jesus, to love people, to teach people to love Jesus. Guess who the focus is? Jesus. Everything that we're about, whether it's ministry to our youngest people or the oldest folks who are here, it's all about introducing them to Jesus. When we talk about the three things that we're committed to every time we gather, worship and prayer in the Bible, all of them point to who? To Jesus. We're not going to strain our focus. We're not going to strain our commitment, always pointing people to Jesus, because when we do that, there's nothing on earth that God cannot do in us, with us, and through us. But the moment that we stray and start doing what we want to do, you know, suddenly then we're all on our own. And as a Christian church, that's where none of us want to be. It says in verse 8, I know your works. I know your deeds. 
Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. He's acknowledging that they're still sinners. He's not commenting on that here. What he's saying is, you've not denied my name and you've kept my word. And what we've wanted to do from day one is to keep God's word holy and to not deny the name of Jesus. See, God knows your deeds. God knows my deeds. God knows everything we do. He created us. God sees everything we do. He sees our good deeds. Yep, He sees all those ones that maybe else no, no one else notices that you want to make sure everyone hears about. God already knows. But God also sees the things that maybe you don't want anybody to see. He, he knows our bad thoughts. He hears our inappropriate and unkind speech. He knows all of our sin. And, and yet He continues to love us and cherish us. The Bible says that God sent us Jesus while we were still sinners. We didn't make the first move. God made the first move. And it was the first move toward us. See, God knows you because God created you. It was God who called you into existence and it was God who gave you the breath of life. You're not a surprise. You're not a mistake. You're not an accident. You have a divine call on your life. It's God who loves you. It's God who sustains you. And it's God who sent you Jesus that we could live for Him. More than 12 years ago, we started as a church about 12 and a half years ago. When we first began to worship, we really didn't bring anything more to the table than an absolute faith and a belief that God can do whatever God chooses to do through us. We brought a willingness to work hard and to pray harder. And the certainty that God alone was the one that would open the door for us. That it wouldn't be any amount of advertising or anything else. It was God alone who would be the one that would bring people to us if we were faithful to Him and to His Word. No matter what people might say. And you can imagine 12 and a half years ago in New Church in Town, people had a whole lot to say. But you know what? We, keep talk, we kept talking about God. We kept teaching people about Jesus. Talk about having little strength. We, we had little strength. We had small numbers and even a smaller amount of money. But we were committed to preaching and to keeping God's word as the focus of our existence and that we would not deny Jesus and who he is. We could have never imagined that 12 years later, the world would be putting so much pressure on us to not talk about the foundational things of Scripture. But we're going to keep talking about them. We're going to continue to speak the truth of God's word. So God called this church into existence and he gave life to us. And this verse is one of the key reasons why we're named what we are. It's God who opens doors, and it's God alone who shuts doors. And when God opens a door, whether it's to a church or to a human heart, that door stays open, and there's nothing that a human being can do to shut it. It's not to say that people won't try. When you go out there and start living for Jesus, people will try to shut you down. They'll try to shut you up. They'll try to throw you off that, that life of witness. But if you stay with it, God alone is the one who will be able to keep you speaking the truth of Him. Verse 9, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. We've heard that phrase, synagogue of Satan, before. This is a really important verse to the people in Philadelphia. The number of Christians is small. The populations of Jews is large. And the Jewish people are probably a little bit afraid of them because there's things happening in the lives and in this Christian community that isn't happening anywhere else. And so they are the ones that began to persecute the believers in Jesus. 
That synagogue of Satan is a phrase that comes before in other letters and to the original audience. It, it talked about Jews who claimed to be religious but rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Today, the, the similar thing would be someone who claims the title of Christian saying that they're going to heaven because they believe in Jesus, but nothing about their life and certainly nothing about the way that they talk about people has changed. These Jews in the day are Jews by lineage, but they started persecuting the Christians. Later on in Revelation 12.10, the Bible talks about the accuser of the brethren, those who speak falsely and maliciously against other believers. But it still happens today. It would be people who claim to be Christians, and like the early Jews, they, they might have done some good deeds. They, they might be able to pat themselves on the back for some things, but their hearts are unchanged. And they might go to church, and they might speak the language. They picked up their Christianese. Their lives are still ruled by their own wants and desires. They maybe worship money or power or position, or they live in a way that just doesn't place Jesus at the center of their life. And they use Jesus to support their religion rather than following Jesus. While we're all sinners, there are some who claim the benefits of being a believer and call Jesus their Savior, but haven't submitted their lives to Him as the Savior of their lives and do not live with Him as the Lord of their lives. Romans 2.28 talks about how it's not the outward things, it's not what we do, it's not what we say, it's not what the world sees, but rather our heart that makes us a follower of Jesus. Jesus promises these believers in Philadelphia that are going through this persecution that one day all those who stood against them, all those who stood against his true followers in this church will end up bowing down to the believers who remain faithful. That's the promise to the believers in the church of Philadelphia. Life might be rough. It might not be fun, but one day all those people who are making fun of you, who are spreading lies and rumors about you, who are pushing you into persecution, one day God tells them all those people are going to bow down to them. That had to be incredibly encouraging to this church. And he goes on and he says, because, here's the reason, you've kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. We as a church want to be people who are known for keeping Jesus as our focus and God's Word at the center of all that we do, we want to be known for people who have patient endurance, even in the midst of a world full of bitterness and corruption and unkindness and deceitfulness. We don't have to be about that. We can be people who talk about Jesus, not about others. Patient endurance born of faith points to the Jesus who lives in us. I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may see your crown. This is where we say, come Lord Jesus. And some people, I, I got a friend that we text each other pretty often. Maybe today's the day. Maybe today's the day he comes back. I sure hope so. Me too. Not because I don't like this life, but because I look forward to that life more. Come Lord Jesus. He's promised he'll return. And what we have is our faith in Him as our Savior and Redeemer. When we make Him the Lord of our lives, this verse is also making reference to a day for some people that's going to be absolutely terrifying. It's the day of judgment, where God will sort out all those who have accepted Jesus and lived for Him and those who deny Him. But it's going to be a day that's going to surprise some people. Matthew 7.21 says, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven 
those who, only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. For all who do God's will, who live for Jesus, our crown is that promise of an eternity in heaven with Him. It doesn't mean that we're perfect people. It means that we're living for a perfect God and that we're forgiven by a perfect Savior. To the one who conquers, and this is where God is making His promise, to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. It's a list of the promise that God's making to these believers. To be a pillar is to be a permanent and supporting part of God's kingdom. And he's saying God's kingdom is near. That's been the message throughout the New Testament. It will be coming to us and one day we will forever depart this world that's been made corrupt by the evil of people. Sometimes we contribute to it. But when we're living for Jesus, when we're living according to God's world, word, excuse me, that's not us. Finally, it says we receive a new name. We receive God's new name. What is that name? That's a great question. I don't know. Nobody does. The Bible doesn't tell us. But what the Bible says is that we become a new creation when we, when we accept Jesus as our Savior. And when Jesus returns, then we're going to know there's going to be a new Jerusalem and we're going to get a new name. Then we'll know. But for now, we live in faith. Living in faith. We've had an incredible example around here of a family that grew in faith despite the most horrible circumstances. Dustin, I thank your last service you're here. I'm going to thank you again. You were a living example, you and Lauren, of what it was to live and to grow in faith and to live in the joy of that promise in circumstances none of us would have liked to have dealt with. And, and now the result is that your beautiful wife is living with Jesus, her Savior in heaven, and you're going to get to see her again. Thank you for being an example of faith and action for all of us. You have taught a church. Thank you. Verse 13. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Every letter of the seven ends the same way. He who has an ear, let him hear. Some translations say whoever has an ear. Quite simply, the way that we should understand that is this. Now you've heard. Will you listen and obey? We've been through six letters. Some congratulations, some commendations, some criticisms, and some warnings. We've heard. Now we know. Will we listen and obey? Will we live differently? What will the world know of us? The very crux of living as a Christian is putting that knowledge into action. We know, but will we do? And so often... We touched on this a few weeks ago. So often, what the world really knows about you and I, it's not what we say we believe. It's what we say the rest of the time. So I talked about think. And so I said I'd bring it back again, and, and so here it is. I, I often wonder how Jesus approached his conversations with people. You know, throughout the New Testament, Jesus never tells anyone they're going to hell. He says to go and sin no more, and he points the way to heaven. Jesus never embarrassed or humiliated anyone who was, who was trying to follow him or didn't know him. Had a different story for the religious leaders that were, were turning the synagogue into a place that it was never meant to be. But Jesus was always kind. He was honest, helpful, directed people to a better life through him. So think, let's, <coughs> let's go to this one more time. I tried to speak and breathe at the same time. That doesn't work. 
Let's go back to think one more time. And maybe if we actually put this into practice and say, how would Jesus handle the situation that we're in? Not what would Jesus do, but what might Jesus say or not say? Think. Is it true? If it isn't true, why in the world would you say it? And then even if it is true, is it helpful? I would add to that loving. If it isn't helpful or loving, why would we say it? Is it inspiring? Is, is someone going to feel better or be encouraged by what you say? Or would the world be just fine if you didn't say it? Worse yet, would someone be hurt by what you say? Is it necessary? Is the world going to be a better place because of that statement that you make? Is that person going to be a more encouraged person because of that statement? If not, you probably don't need to say it. Finally, is it kind? And that's the one that hit me when I was thinking about it this week. Is that what Jesus would have said? Is that how Jesus would have treated this person? Maybe you're someone you're really mad at. Maybe someone who's hurt you, sinned against you, disappointed you, offended you, whatever the thing is. Is your response to them kind? And, and do we really have any excuse to be anything else? Because God, in His wisdom and grace, has shown us kindness in Jesus that we don't deserve. When you're talking to people, and you're out there trying to figure out how to live as a Christian, is it true, is it helpful, is it inspiring, is it necessary, is it kind? Would Jesus say it? And if so, how would He say it? So the idea of he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I'm going to wrap all this up with a very simple phrase. Jesus died for you. Will you live for him? God created you with a divine purpose, with a, with a design reason for being. And in order to help accomplish that, Jesus died for you. Will you live for him? Let's pray. God, thank you for these seven letters to these seven churches. They're challenging. They're they're not easy. They're encouraging. And God, where I, I just leave this message today is, is with a desire simply to be better. Yet again, I just simply want to be better. And God, I think that when we look at this, we all feel the same way. And we know that it's only in Jesus, it's only through the power of your Holy Spirit that we can be anything other than who we are. But we know that, God, you created us with a plan for a purpose. And God, you don't leave us out on our own. You give us your Holy Spirit and you sent us your Son, Jesus, who died for us. And you raised him from the grave that our sins might be forgiven. And all that you ask is that we live for him. So God, I just pray that through your Holy Spirit, not, to, not through, through what we, uh, we make up on our own, but God, what you bring to us, what you reveal to us. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would show us the things that we might need to change, the things that we need to stop doing, that your Holy Spirit would show us the things that we do or say that hurt other people. God, and that your Holy Spirit would work in us that, that we would every day seek to be more and more like your Son, Jesus. So God, we give you thanks. We thank you for who you are and for who Jesus is and what he has done for us that we cannot do for ourselves. And then we ask, God, that you would, you would bless us with the, the presence of your Holy Spirit, that every day we would grow to become more and more like him. In Jesus' name, amen.